0: 18 plus. Welcome to Heart and Hand, the Rangers Podcast, the podcast that definitely doesn't steal ideas from other podcasts when it's got a quiet week. This week on Heart and Hand, what happened when <laughs> Welcome to Art and Hand Rangers podcast. My name is David Edgar. I'm your host, and in fact, I'm all you've got this week. It's uh, a solo showing this week because, if you remember correctly, last week we had said that during these these sort of quiet periods, uh, such as the winter break, that we would probably not normally have a show. But uh, a few weeks ago, during the the Paul Le Gwen episode, uh, I told. A couple of stories just uh, about when Le Guin was at Ibrox and uh, the, the sort of thing that happened. And what the suggestion was, was if you guys liked it, which you seemed to do and got in touch saying, could you do something like that in the future? And I thought, well, this week there is very little for us to talk about. um it was a friendly in Germany. It was very cold. We played a very good German side, and they beat us. So you know, not not really <laughs> much to go on there. Um, anyone who's expecting anything else, by the way, come on, you know, seriously, you would expect us to turn up and hammer uh, a side that's technically miles, miles, miles better than us. I mean, that's talk about run before you can walk. That's a way way down in the distance, guys. So the the match uh, didn't cause as much. Anoint at Hand Towers as it seems to have done, in other places, but uh, yes, rather than just go, you know, lazy bastard, loyal, and have the week off like we usually would, what we decided to do was to ask you guys to to send us in questions that you might have had about the time that that I was the spokesman for the Rangers Supporters Trust and active in in what we called fan politics and you know, fan activism and whatnot. And if we didn't get any questions, uh, I could have had a lovely week off. But unfortunately, we did, and I'm going to do my best over the next wee while to answer as as many of them as I can, and to do so as honestly as I can. I, I think that the statue of limitations, in terms of, uh, <laughs> in terms of keeping stuff back, has now passed. So I'm just going to to get on with it I've got a list of your questions here And uh, if it's not entertaining It's kind of your fault for asking the wrong questions So that'd be the way I would look at it Hi guys FanDuel is one day fantasy football You select a team of Premier League players For a single round of fixtures So you're not locked in for the whole season You can play, watch and win money If you're good enough in one day First up, choose your contest. You can play for free or put your own money on the line for bigger payouts. We are playing the £5 fan fave with six grand of prizes to be won to the top 36 managers. Then you pick your dream team. You have £100 million to spend, there's no subs, no captains, just 11 shirts to fill and you need to find the perfect formation. Splash out the dead certs. hunt out the hidden gems. It's the ultimate test of your football knowledge. FanDuel was designed by football fans like us and it's powered by Stats. It's about much more than goals, assists and clean sheets. Every pass, interception, every tackle, they've all got big implications. And we've got an offer for you. Deposit £10 play with £30 sign up today. So, make a deposit of £10 and Fanjo will give you an extra £20 free credit to play with. You'll get £5 free credit in your account to use each week for four weeks. It's the perfect chance to prove your managerial prowess and win big. Use promo code RANGERS when signing up to claim your offer. Promo code RANGERS when signing up to claim your offer. Available in the UK only for those over 18. Please play responsibly, terms apply. <laughs> Okay, first up is a question from Colin Hector McPherson. That's fantastic name, Colin. I mean, that is the most Scottish name ever. If you are not a walking brand of shortbread, then you've missed your calling in life, my friend. Anyway, Colin said, uh, as I said last week, lads, I'm completely up for the specials. I think he means this episode rather than the band. Um, I say that. He may be currently grooving too, too much too young right now, but, but that, that's what I think he means by it. Um, I think it's right to do them as separate shows also. Good arse-licking. My question would be, at the time when Martin Bain was at the club, did you rate him? Or is it with hindsight looking back, you guys understood what he was doing? That's a tough one. No, personally, no, I didn't. Um, I thought he had a difficult job because he was working for a guy who thought he knew everything. And... 100% 100 percent did not see the staff as being involved in a collaborative effort. And Murray's was not a guy who would kick about ideas with his team. He was not a guy who was prone to long, arduous stretches of of, of of debate and worry about whether a cause he was taking was a cause of action he was taking was the right one. And Bain was a functionary. I mean that that's what his job was, he was a very well paid one and Bain had two main things at Ibrox. One, to do what, what Murray laid out in terms of the, the focus and in terms of direction of the club, and two, to run the club on a day-to-day basis. Now, where I will give Bain credit was it became increasingly hard to do that over the years due to cuts, um, due to staff leaving and not being replaced, etc., and, and Bain did a good job at that, and he did. And when Murray left, um, Bain was part of it, and where he does deserve credit... Bain deserves a lot of credit for, he was part of the team with with, uh, Alistair Johnson part of that board who reduced the debt significantly and were continuing to reduce the debt and they also recognised the dangers of White, again you can ask why them why didn't speak it more uh, more directly than they did at the time but you know with Bain you met him, he's very very self-assured guy, uh, very confident, uh, I think he might be a bit of a Marmite person in that He comes across, certainly to me, there's a difference between coming across as confident and then there's coming across as smarmy. And that was a line, I think, that he he went over more often than not. And I say he he might have been a bit of a marmite, but I'd be fibbing if I said I knew anyone who met him who who was on the loved side of the whole loved-like debate there. I think uh, a lot of people just rubbed the wrong way, but... He didn't care. You know, he had the, the back of the chairman. However, he did once say to me when I was complaining, as I did regularly, about PR and the lack of coming from Rangers. He said, the problem is I could go and hire the best PR agency in the country tomorrow and they would quit within 24 hours because he, pointing to Murray's office, thinks he knows best. And that that was true. So a lot of the time, Bain got shit for decisions that he didn't make, but he was the face of the of the decision... But he he wasn't a great negotiator. I think his, his track record shows you that. There's there's no getting away from that. You can't look at the list of players who came in for big money, left for virtually nothing, or players that were paid off um, silly contracts. Uh, but I think a lot of that was because he was never trusted to be more than, than a bit of a functionary. And like I say, Murray was very clear. I'll tell you an example of how clear Murray was about people's roles in the company we were through at a meeting with them in charlotte square one day and it was myself mark and i think one other i think fraser mark might have been there and it was coming up towards christmas or whatever and we'd had the usual sort of meeting that we had with murray which is 20 minutes of shouting and screaming 20 minutes of calming everybody down and then 20 minutes of lads you know if you just listen just stick with me this is what's gonna happen so at the end of it when we're kind of parting our ways uh I think it was Mark who asked him, you know, how about the vineyard and he just his face lit up and he's oh the vineyard and he started showing us pictures on his, his computer, uh, of of, of his wine uh, of his uh vineyards and his wine and stuff. And then he turned round to the guy who was Rangers no, he wasn't, he was Murray International's financial director who'd been sitting in, in the meeting for some reason and he said, uh Whatever the guy's name was, say John. I, I'm not I can't quite remember. He said, uh, John, go and get the boys some wine. Uh go and get them all a case of wine uh to to take away with them. And, you know, he gave us it very kind and we declared it to the trust, Link, uh, because we didn't take gifts, but we declared we said we've been given this, and uh, as anybody knows my, my reputation for booze, I was drinking it. So uh especially at that time. So that wasn't the what what struck me that, that he did it, it was that he just told this guy, this guy was a financial director of a massive company, he must have been on minimum quarter of a million pounds a year, and his boss just told to just go and get that, you know, like, as if he was a secretary, as if he was lower as if he was a PA, you know, just just go, go and get the lads that, and this guy comes tripping back in, and I thought, Jesus, and I couldn't imagine any other company where that would happen if you spoke to a guy that senior, even as the owner, even as the boss... That, that that would fly but but such was such was Murray's command over the over the situation uh, Colin also asked he said uh, you said you guys were fan activists before so I'd like to know when you got more involved in it and I assume it was in re- retaliation to something going on at the club so the reason for it um, yeah I'd, personally throughout the 90s um, the, I had this sort of gnawing sense of something isn't right here and I, I don't mean that that I could have put any into it, but it was just when people were were lauding achievements and whatnot. I think you know I'd look at the European results and whatnot and think we should be better than this. And people forget John Niner. A lot of our performances were really poor. Um, We had a great record when it when it counted, but a lot of the time it was you know give the ball to Brian and Gaza and let them do something, and then you'd have great players like Goff and, and Gascoigne at the back, eh, Goff and Gorham at the back to, to keep the goals out. So. There was just this feeling that we weren't all that we could be, I suppose, and that probably came from being spoiled, because when you're winning trophies all the time, and then you're going, ah, but I want to win trophies and play well, then, you know, as, as subsequent years have showed us, maybe you should just be happy with the, with the silverware. But I started reading Follow Follow, and there were a lot of guys in that who who were kind of saying the stuff that, that I was beginning to think, so it was great, it really chimed with me, the fanzine. Um, and then... It started online, there was a message board, and you would be jailed now for even just opening that up on your browser, the stuff in the early days, Jesus Christ, um, they think that that modern social media is bad, well, but it was funny, and there was was a core of maybe about 30 or 40 guys on it at first, I mean, there really wasn't that many, and through that I started meeting those guys, uh, including, you know, Mark Dingwall and people like that, and... uh, you know, I, don't get me wrong now, I, I screen Mark's calls these days, but back then, you know, it was quite cool to, to meet him. And, um, and Mark is incredibly politically motivated. Mark, Mark should have been a spy. He was thinner, and they were more confident that he would A, you know, be, be able to fit into a crowd without it being noticed, and B, not kill anyone. I'm sure he would have been a very successful spy, but he, he loves his intrigue and stuff. So he kind of wrote me in to, to get involved, write a few articles for, for follow-follow, something he was always keen on if he didn't have to pay somebody. So a kind of young guy like me who was, oh, look, I've got an article on follow-follow, um, was ideal for him. And that kind of thing went on for a couple of years. Then, round about 2002, um, ideas started to step up in terms of, you know, Murray announced the debt and he he was stepping down. Um and, and John McClellan was coming in and the debt was 80 million and, and even then you were like, Shit, there's no way to trade out of this, you know, what are we gonna do? Somebody's gonna have to put money in. And the RST was formed and I went to the meeting that they were uh, that it was formed at, but I didn't join because I, I had some concerns about it um at the time. Just just basically the same as everybody else did over the years, which is well, you know, what's it gonna do and whatnot? But Mark and, and Scott were on the board uh, to begin with, so I think it was Fraser, actually. But after about a year, there were rumours that Ibrox was going to be sold to a property developer, a friend of David Murray's, called Gavin Masterson, well, to a company called uh, Stadium Investment Group, owned by a guy called Gavin, Gavin Masterson, who, some of you will know better, he was a high hedging at uh, Bank of Scotland, and was one of the... The kind of Murray's mates at Bank of Scotland, who through the, uh, through the the glory days, had supp- uh, supplied cheap credit, and he also was Dunfermline, uh, chairman and owner for a while. I think there was there was some issues there, which which you may, maybe what you read up on. And like every Rangers fan, I went frigging apoplectic, and why Brock's cannot be sold. That's that's our home, and the deal got stymied, and the trust did an awful lot. Of it, and trust me on that because I want a member. I'm not trying not try to take any credit in this. It was Colin Glass, guys like that, um, that they stopped it, and they got shed loads of abuse in the paper, and it was just by getting it out there and the reaction that Murray knew that no, this isn't going to fly. So, I was quite impressed. So I joined the the trust, and then after about six months, they. Needed to co-opt some or wanted to co-opt some people onto the board, so they co-opted me, but not for any, you know, any special talents that I had, but just you know I'd done leafleting and I knew some of the people, so it was that kind of thing. They knew I would come along to meetings, they knew I would contribute. I was energetic. I would do kind of what they asked for me, and then after a few months, Colin Glass left, and we needed to redo the media side of things, and. Stephen Smith, who is an experienced political and has is, is worked in for years and years and years uh, in politi- political activism and trade union and whatnot. So Stephen was going to run it, but he lives in England, so they needed somebody who could be available quite quickly to do media work up here. And, you know, I was that guy. Um, I was mouthy and confident, and that was the that was reason that I get put forward. And so that, that was how I got involved in it. Um, next question, William Ross. Would like a bit more insight into some of the shite journalists you have had to deal with over the years at the Trust and beyond. Um, now, I'm I'm going to take from this, William, uh, and I'm going to go out on a limb here. And you can call me crazy if you will, but uh, from the use of the, the phrase shite journalists uh, and the fact that journalists were... Was in inverted commas. I don't think you're that big a fan of uh, the members of the the fourth estate. Aye. um, some of them were were pricks, and some of them were absolutely brand new. I I would break it into um, that there are three types in the main uh, of Scottish football journalists that that I dealt with. The first ones were guys who were old and bitter, and they hated everything to do with Scottish football they hated the job they hated the life they you know just could not be arsed with fans or people or anything and it just lost all glow for them the second category were the guys who took it too seriously who kind of you know thought they were maybe the, the, the starring in their own version of all the president's men and you know running around breaking important news, such as, you know, Player X has got a thigh strain and he'll miss the trip to Love Street on Saturday. Um, and then the third category were guys that were decent and were all right, and they liked their job, but they stayed away from the the more, uh, the more kind of frayed areas where you were going to get into, you know, things like television appearances and stuff. They didn't want any of that shite. They just wanted to go and do their job, get their wage and go home. And those were the guys that you tended to, to sort of gravitate to, because they played a straight back. They were the guys you could trust. So at the time, you had uh, guys like Colin Duncan and David McCarthy um, at the Daily Record at the time. Um, you had guys like Derek McGregor at The Sun, and, and they were decent blokes. Um, Scott McDermott at The Sunday Mail. They would phone you because you know they, they had something, they needed a quote, and they knew I was you know, quite quote-worthy usually. And that that was that was how it went, and you know they were mostly fine. They, they would give you information. Gary Ralston, another one that springs to mind. Dash your question, you give them an answer, and it appeared what you'd what you'd said. There were other guys you had to be a lot more careful with, um, because you just knew that whatever you said, they were looking for you to say something specifically. You know. Like well, personally, I'd take everyone who goes to chapel on a Sunday and have them bunt, <laughs> you know, off the cuff remark like that, um, and that would have been the headline. And then you know, you're like, oh, I didn't mean that; I was joking. See, although there was a level of trust, you still had to be aware that these guys had a job to do, and if you said something controversial, it was better. In terms of you know, print uh, sorry, broadcast media. Ewan Cameron at Real Radio was a great guy. Hundred percent, was a Hearts fan. Didn't really like Rangers or Celtic, but didn't favour one of them. And the thing about Hume was he was a punter. You know, he he wasn't a journalist, uh, which is why all the other journalists hated him because he was just a punter. So he didn't see fans as being these idiots that you had to pay lip service to. You know, he he got on with his he got on with his job, and he he was quite happy to give us a platform. This is going to sound surprising, but one of the most decent guys I dealt with, I thought at the time, was Jim Spence at the BBC, who was nothing but a gentleman to me, and that's why it really surprised me all the stuff that happened, uh, you know, between two thousand and twelve onwards. Because up to that point, Jim was really solid, decent guy, um, never misquoted, never used something in the wrong way. Wasn't the United fan again? Didn't seem to particularly care. About the old firm, one way or another, and whether it was not, it was somebody got in his ear or something happened afterwards that made him so bitter to Rangers, that I genuinely don't know, but he was a decent bloke. Um, and I remember an incident years ago um, with Off the Ball. Um, I had, uh, there'd been some, some controversy about something Stuart Cosgrove had said, and I think Frankie from Gersnet had had been in contact with him. And he was genuinely surprised, I think, to see how Rangers fans viewed him, because I think that they saw themselves as being quite anti-establishment, and we were saying to them, no, 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 you're joining in with the witch hunt on us, you know, everyone's coming to, to get fired into Rangers, and remember this is before 2012 and you guys have signed up to it and you're going in that. you're not anti-establishment, you are the establishment. You know, you're know, you just running with a hound, man. And he was very hurt by that and I remember he got in touch with me and uh, invited me to to go meet up with him and had a few drinks. He was a decent guy. Went on off the ball a couple of times afterwards, Tam Cown, decent guy. And Tam Cown was by the only one that I ever thought, nah, he's much quicker than me um, in terms of, there was uh, his producer had said something to him um, and he, he just came back with his comeback instantly and I went all right, don't, don't try and mess with him you're going to look like a dick I didn't want to look like one of these guys on you know when they get a politician on have I got news for you and they try and take on Merton and Hislop and they end up just looking. I I was that wasn't happening to me so you can think what you think about them personally afterwards but as I say those were the guys who who did alright by me he had plenty of fannies there were there were guys that were just you know you and Graham um, for example, he's one just a mad Celtic supporter, you know. Um, the Herald, we wouldn't talk to at the time because Spears was there, and it just you know no good could come of it. Radio Clyde, um, we wouldn't talk to. Um, I think he might have appeared on. I might have appeared on it once, and then a decision was taken that we were never doing it again. But um, Peter Martin, though, does deserve a wee a wee bit of of space of his own. That he once got in touch with me, phoned. And he said, uh, because Celtic had drawn AC Milan. And Peter Martin never phoned me, because he knew we wouldn't appear, so I was surprised. But he phoned and he said, "Uh, David, no, no, we don't want you to come on, but it's just Celtic have have, uh, have drawn AC Milan. And uh, we were wanting to know, you know, like, why didn't Rangers get many tickets for the San Siro the last time? And I went, what, were we played in there? And he went, yeah. Because they were playing behind closed doors. Oh, well there are you sure? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I'm bloody positive. <laughs> and he said, Alright, okay, thank you. And I'm like, Did that just happen? Um I don't know, you know, and it, I mean this wasn't like ten years after we played in two thousand and six, two thousand five, two thousand six, and this with two thousand and seven. So uh yeah, I was glad I could help him out. Um like that. But so that that was my sort of journalistic love ins and uh Spears, you know everybody knows I didn't rate the guy very highly, uh, which was fine because he rated himself quite highly he just never got it, you know, he genuinely I think going back to to the phrase useful idiot he just didn't get that the people that were puffing him up were not his friends and the fact that he had decided he was going to take on this cause you could see when he spoke, the light of, of intelligence was gone from his eyes and instead there was a sort of burning light of the zealot and he was going to rid Scotland of sectarianism by picking one side of the debate. And, you know, no, that, that's like saying you're going to stop war by killing one of the armies. It, it doesn't work like that, but he, he just never got it. And uh, God love him. I think, he, I think he fancied himself one of these uh, Patrick Bartley, William guy, guy, Hugh McIlvaney guys who was going to go off and write for the Times or the Guardian and it never happened, and he was always stuck in Scotland. Uh, I suspect that that might have played a part in, in, in the bitterness. And then, of course, there was there was the thing with Murray, um, the fallout um, where he'd been banished from the land of succulent lamb. And that that was what... He said it was some Damascene conversion to, to hate and bigotry, you know, to like, 20 years into his career. He suddenly noticed that Rangers fans sung the Billy Boys and I find that hard to believe. It was because he, he fell out with Murray. Um, and Murray could pinpoint the exact day when it happened. Um, so yeah, that, that, that was my experience with them But as I say, there's some good guys out there They're the guys that you don't have a lot of interaction on You don't see threads about them on message boards They go in, they do their job They file their story and they come back again Scott Craig Hi David, thanks for taking this idea on board About stories from the old days We'd love to hear more about the interaction with Murray And insight into the days we threw money around to get top players Um, It was kind of over by the time I started to deal with them. Um, The last big summer spending was probably 2002 and I didn't start meeting regularly Murray till about 2004 so he cut a kind of frustrated figure about that time because Murray loved making deals absolutely loved, lived for it um Listen, if Rangers hadn't have of hit the the financial buffers the way that he'd have left anyway with transfer windows, he'd only have worked January and and the summer because that was was what he loved doing. He loved buying players. Um, wasn't really bothered selling them. Left that to other people, which is why, dot dollar wasn't done. And and he loved going in and you know, throwing down cash and especially if it was someone else. He he, he used to refer a lot back to the Golden Jury deal. And I could never get my head around it when you thought some of the deals that the guy had done. And then I realised why it was Alan Sugar. And he'd beaten Alan Sugar down in price. And that's why he was so proud of it. Uh, the other one was was Colin Hendry, I think it's the famous one. And people go, you know, and I asked him this one time, I like, did Advocat want him? And he went, nah. He said, uh, but I did. I thought, you know, he would be he'd be ideal for us. Um, but obviously it didn't work out. It's so a total Murray, Murray signing. What was he like as a person? It was impressive. Um, He's, uh, certainly back then he was a big guy um, physically, top half, because he refused to use a wheelchair, he used crutches, even though his doctors told him to use a wheelchair, and they wouldn't. So he, he had massive upper body strength and he worked out a lot. And he was just a guy who commanded the room. He was just a guy who was used to if he told you something he expected it done I think over the years the problem was as you saw what eventually happened to Rangers what eventually happened to his business empire what happened was he was so used to that that nobody ever challenged him Um, we used to joke that whenever we would disagree with him it almost physically hurt him because he was just so not used to it and it was like he's one of these guys that were if everybody would you know his heart is in the right place if everyone would just shut up and do what I tell them then it'll be alright if they would just listen to me then everything would be okay and then all of a sudden he does coming along and saying, actually, it's not okay. And he could never get his head around, okay, it's going badly now, but it went well before, so come on. And in any other business that might be acceptable, I doubt it, but it certainly wasn't with Rangers. And he used to give it the, you know, he used to give it the whole canella. Ah, you weren't complaining. You weren't complaining when we were running nine in a row. And I said, well, Mr Murray, no offence, that's a wee bit. Like a dad giving his kids... Loads of Christmas presents that he can't afford. And then you know, they play with them on Christmas Day and the bailiffs come round for them at the end of January and the Waynes are crying and he says, oh, well, you weren't complaining on Christmas Day. You know, you you have a responsibility. You're the custodian. You're never tired of telling us this. It's your job to to look after the farm. And you haven't. Uh, and uh, people are coming to burn it down. and By the end as well, he was just sick of it. He just wanted out. He should have left... I think, in 2000, he should have sorted out the debt and buggered off, with the benefit of hindsight. He tried to go in 2002, of course, and the bank made him come back and said, no, you have to sort this out. Um, and he, whether he likes it or not, he dragged Rangers into a position from which we were unable to recover with the pain that we went through of demotion. And that's unforgivable. And I know some people who, who do believe in the, well, we had a good Christmas day before before the bailiffs came, uh, school of thought, will will defend them and whatnot, but David Murray did more harm to Rangers than anybody, including Steen or anyone else you want to name, because he allowed the unthinkable to not only become thinkable, but to become probable and then to actually happen. And he can blame Craig White all he wants. He was too clever to be duped by Craig White. And he allowed Rangers um, to be dragged into the morass of his own businesses and like his own businesses eventually to sink. And for that, I think you can can only look at his tenure as, as one of absolute failure. Because personally, I'd rather he had just had a middling start and a middling finish as opposed to a fantastic start and a debacle at the end because it, it left us well off. and he left us in a position we should, we should never have been in the position that we're currently trying to get out of now. Scott Stubbs, uh, I really liked PLG stuff. I had no idea about him not taking a payoff but making sure his people were looked after. Shows a real class about the guy that I and I'm sure others weren't aware of. Got me thinking about people who are maybe not too well thought of by the support but done things behind the scenes we don't know that would change opinions of them such as the PLG story. Failing that, just tell us who's a pure wank. Ah, right, that's that's an interesting one. I can't think of anybody behind the scene who's who's totally who's totally that. Because I can't think of many people behind the scene who you might consider a bastard publicly, but who are really you know nice guys. It's more the other way about. Um, I don't really think it's fair to, to to call them out on that. There are there are guys that you think are good guys that are fantastic guys, um, bomber, for example. Um, Bomber's everything that, that you would want them to be, that, that's what's amazing about him, and, and yet none of it's false, he's just Bomber, he's just a brilliant guy, he loves Rangers. Um, just a, a really crack bloke. Um, Walter Smith is terrifying, <laughs> and Walter, when he wants to, can ooze malevolence, and uh, yeah, Walter would be a guy I'd hate having meetings with. Because it was really hard. Murray, I could just about, you know, muster up enough confidence to tell him what I thought. But Walter was A, Walter, and B, could kill you with his thumb if he decided to. So that was, that was always a thing. But I, I can't think of anyone, you know, off the top of my head who I had a dealing with that left me really disappointed because... I didn't really expect a lot from a lot of them. A lot of these, the, the players, by that I mean, a lot of them are young guys. Um, what was disappointing was during that that none of them would criticise Murray, which if they had a done might have given more momentum of trust and who knows. Um, there's a loyalty to Murray from all of the, the ex players that I find incongruous. Um, that yes, he gave you good times. I, I suppose you could commend them in the loyalty, but That then got into the area that I always felt was your loyalty to Rangers or to David Murray and for a lot of them it was David Murray Um, although in in their defence David Murray couldn't, he couldn't see that there was uh, a credit card's worth a difference between him and Rangers, he thought it was one and the same, so maybe they they buy into that theory, I don't know Ignatius O'Reilly on Twitter said looking back, what peripheral people were unfairly judged during the period and what Rangers men let us down the last couple of years, Bain was unfairly judged, and the last couple of years, Alistair Johnson was probably unfairly judged because they really, really did the best to get the debt down and won against Craig White, and that should never be and hold everything together, and that shouldn't be forgotten. What Rangers men let us down? If I was being harsh, I'd say basically everyone but Bomber, because we needed an army Uh, and Sandy Jardin Sandy Jarden always did his best but we needed an army and only one guy tried to muster it whereas if can you imagine if 30 or 40 ex-Jers players had been leading rallies outside Ibrox Um, who knows who knows but but yeah I would definitely say that just for a lot of them it's they don't need the hassle they don't see themselves as involved in this all through my time with the trust you know they are professionals and they are being paid to do a job. And maybe it's our fault. Maybe we imbue them with too much of ourselves and our beliefs and our spirit and we want them, whereas at the end of the day, these are professional athletes who go and do their best, take their wage and bugger off home, and it's not their fault they get elevated into positions that they might not deserve to be in. So maybe, maybe it's our fault. Barry Richardson, best or funny interaction with players during your time at the Trust? I was speaking at a Trust annual dinner, I think it was 2007, and it was our biggest one ever, there was about 600 people there, you know, 60 quite ahead, so it was it's quite a quite an event. And the top two tables were full of Rangers legends, and it was guys like Johnny Hubbard, Billy Simpson, Colin Steen, um, I think Willie Johnson, uh, Willie Henderson rather, um, you know, D- D- Davy White. Marvin Andrews, Andy Gorham John Brown—you know it was like just legends, you know. And I'm i up there standing, up, talking in front of them, you know. So I thought I'd do a wee ice-breaking joke. And I said, "You know, it's, it's really terrifying to be stood up here in front of so many Rangers legends and John McDonald." And it got a big laugh, and I thought it was funny, but his face was like thunder, and I thought, "Shit!" So afterwards, I walked up to him, and I was like, "John, you know, I'm really really sorry. He like, ah, you're all right." Many goals did you score for Rangers? I said, "No, exactly." I said, "I hope you didn't mind." Uh and he and he took it quite well. Um but I, I thought for a moment he was gonna glass me. Um he was he was genuinely raging. And uh yeah, so, so if you're listening, John, which I doubt, uh, I apologise for that one. So, uh, yeah, the other, the other um, good one was Marvin Andrews, who is exactly like you think he is. He's the nicest guy in the whole world. I mean, just, it's not for debate, he is the nicest man in the whole world. And that night at the, the Trust dinner, you couldn't have, you know, the guy couldn't reach down to tie shoelaces without somebody coming up for a picture or a chat and he never, not once did he lose patience or stop smiling or that, and any other dealings we've had from him, he's just mm, a, a genuine of Sunshine, wonderful guy, um, and, you know, you, you get the feeling that he could inspire you to do pretty much anything, because, I mean, he just, you know, keep believing, he genuinely believes uh, everything he's saying to you, so, uh, yeah, t- top fellow. Jack Hackett. I'd like to hear more about that meeting with you, Dingwall and David Murray. Um not really much to add to it. you can also read a full account of it in my book, Twenty First Century Blue, still available on Kindle. But we walked in, I'll I'll tell you the first one, I was really nervous. We had to go through to Edinburgh so there's a journey, and, you know, we're sitting in the train. I'm sitting with Mark and you know, he's threatening to do terrible things to me in the toilet over the of the train and all that sort of thing, because he's evil and we, we get and he could have you know i mean he could have sat on me and we get through to to edinburgh and i'm getting progressively more nervous and we get there i am really really nervous so we go into the meeting uh, and there's murray and he's not looking at us he wouldn't look at me for about 20 minutes actually he just kept talking about me um but we walk into the room and murray secretary says can i can i get you guys anything tea coffee water and i say oh, can i could have a glass of water please and mark went can I have a glass of milk and everybody Murray breaks, he's stare and looks at him, and Bane looks at him and I look at him and she goes, Oh yeah, just just milk. He said, Yeah, please. So we sit down, um and then, you know, as I said, uh, as I've said before, Murray, um he's he's been on the phone this whole time, so sort of in a swivel chair looking away from us, and he puts it down and he says, uh, You know I've just come off a off a phone call there, you know, I've just finished a deal for twenty five million. Kind of stuff I do in a day, puts the phone down and I I shit myself. Mark goes, Great, who are we signing? I go, What? He said, Your 25 million pound deal. He's like, Oh no, it's a property deal. And Mark said, Well, to be honest, Mr. Chapman, I don't really care who we're signing, or I don't really care what your business is. I only care about Glasgow Rangers. (laughs) And sits down and that sort of relaxed me a wee bit. But the thing that really did it is when she comes back with the water and the milk and Bain and Murray and whoever the financial guy are, are just staring at this milk and they're not listening at all. And it's quite clearly, they're going, who the fuck asks for milk, right? So afterwards, I said to him, because he didn't drink it. I said, why the fuck did you ask for a milk? He said, throws them off their guard because the last thing they expect for you to do is ask for a glass of milk. And they couldn't really... He said, so you can get more out of them when they're kind of going, um, aye, aye, milk that's the way Mark thinks he's you know he's no right but what a guy and uh, I'll tell you something nobody ran over the top of him you know nobody did uh, and for all you'll read shite about him on the internet and stuff and he's this or that usually by people who don't know him um, Mark has done a hell of a lot more for, for Rangers and for Rangers fans than, than anybody you might know and uh, he loves the club deeply uh, and don't ever be don't ever be fooled by that. Graham Roy, what do you feel about the way that Club Murray dealt with spears attacks on a fan base, mainly the Billy Boys, and do you think there was a turning point the way our fans are treated by the media? I think he dealt with it appallingly. Um I think it was a dereliction of duty and I told him that at the time and I said that. And I've always felt that with Murray it was a sort of house to impact with the press that was don't look at my businesses and you can say anything you like about the club, don't criticise me and you can say anything you like about the club and that's what happened because people who ran Light Rangers couldn't really attack us when we were running things in the park couldn't really attack us for uh, the, the way that at the time it looked as though we were run off the park but they could attack the fans and that's what they did and Murray was going to let them so, you know, when that became clear uh, that, that that was what was going to happen, then then that was what happened. And it was just an unfortunate side of Murray's personality that for, for whatever reason he had no interest in defending the fans. Secretly, on a lot of the subjects he agreed with them, you know, that, that were the attacks. So that was maybe one of the things behind it. The Spears thing was because, you know, as I say, Spears has many times claimed that he somehow just saw the light uh, and decided he was going to single-handedly fight this, this scourge of society, which no interest in ending, by the way. If you're interested in ending it, you speak to both sides and you see what causes it and you look at it and you don't go, a football club is entirely to, to blame for what's clearly a social problem. He just wanted to get it up, Rangers. And it was because he used to be one of Murray's pet journalists. Go back, if you ever get a chance, go to the microfiche at the Mitchell and read some of his columns from Scotland the Sunday in the 90s. Um, I mean, that that guy was... a. Uh, you know, magna cum laude, arse of Dave Murray in the first degree. But he was cast away because he wrote in one of his diary pieces at the time about a glamorous blonde, um, Sarah Heaney, I think it was, uh, who was at one of Murray's, you know, residences for the weekend as the guest of Mr Murray when he was there. And Murray was engaged at the time and his, his missus went fucking nuts. Because <laughs> you know clearly, you know he should not have been entertaining attractive newsreaders. So uh, that that was why um, Spears he was cast at the inner circle, and he, he did a couple of art slicking pieces afterwards in a desperate attempt to get let back in, and it never happened. And that was then suddenly the attacks came on us. But what we always said to Murray that he never got again is this damages the brand. This makes you less marketable, makes the club less marketable if all any of the ever associates. And you see the way that it still happens now. Um, story about sectarianism, picture of Rangers fans story of, even if it's not us story about sectarianism, picture of Rangers fans it's all done to associate us with this and if you look at the way that we've been dehumanised as a group that we can just be referred to, to the point where you just knew after the game against Hibs in the Scottish Cup final they would find a way to either limit the blame on Hibs or pin the blame on us and within seconds they were trying that that was, I think, a direct consequence of this. When you said you can attack with impunity, um, and the people who should have been defending us didn't defend us, and it was left to guys like myself at the trust. But we could only do so much, you know, that was that We could only do so much without the support of the club, because without the support of the club, it looked like the club was tacitly agreeing with these people. And then what chance have you got? So it's a big one on the charge sheet for me, because I think that he allowed people who hate us to. He allowed their hate to become mainstream without at any point fighting back, and he could have, um, and he didn't for selfish reasons. Michael Gray, really love the idea of specials, Dave. One new question I had was during the We Deserve Better campaign a few years ago. Walter Smith made a really sacky comment towards a fan. It seem to be implying, shut your mouth, you don't know better. Uh, I then think about McClellan's comment at the AGM that fans were in charge of the debt, it would be even bigger. During your time, where when did you feel this dismissive attitude toward the fans start? Do you have any other examples of this in your dealings with Murray and finally are you confident the treatment won't happen with the current boards? Right, I think we'll finish up with this because I've been rambling away for a while and uh, so that's quite a lot, so we'll, we'll end up with this. Uh, yeah, Walter felt that, maybe rightly... Looking back, that the fans were a bit ungrateful for what he was achieving, and he was kind of right. Where we made a mistake with We Deserve Better was that we went into team matters and we shouldn't have, you know, we spoke about things like the the tactics and the, the lack of, you know, young players can be and we shouldn't have done that. That was a mistake on our part, and uh, I, I would be the first to admit that. So he had a point, he was working miracles. And he was doing it with, I mean, one hand tight behind his back, both hands and both legs shackled. So I could understand where he was coming from in that. The, however, the focus of We Deserve Better was was at Murray. Um, but again, naivety, you know, I, I wasn't a professional at that, it was the first time doing it, that I gave him an out and I gave Murray an out with the, uh, you know, the stuff about the, the team. Should have stuck entirely to the stuff about how money was running the club. The fact that we had to sell—that was why that came about. Why we did it better. We had to sell Chris Boyd to Birmingham, and his quote was, "We're not in any trouble, but if we don't, something bad could happen. Well, we're in trouble then if we need to sell a player. No, but I can understand what what was what was comment to that. In terms of do fan do players think that about fans? Yes, they do. Hundred um, percent. All footballers think that. They think fans uh, in the main. They think uh, all generalizations are are rubbish, including this one. Uh, they don't maybe they don't all think, but a lot of them do think fans don't know what they're talking about. Turn up, don't realise how hard that is, especially a, a supporter like cause that boo and you know what, and they've probably got a point. You know it's like if you're booing a player because he's been rubbish, he's not deliberately being rubbish. Um, so you can understand he's maybe got frustrated. He genuinely is trying his best, and and yet we're getting booed at. but. I've said before on, on the show today that they just they, they see themselves as professional sports people doing a job, and we're a necessary nuisance, you know, because without us, they don't get the money. Without us or our interest, you know, they're, they're playing to empty stadiums, so they know that they have to pay lip service. I think a great example of that came with from Victor Anajibi a few weeks ago on Twitter, where his his or the PR from the, the club had clearly sent him something like, could you tweet something out like, disappoint result, great, su- great support from the fans today, we'll work hard in training. And he copy and pasted and just tweeted the, the whole thing rather than, you know, great work today, great fans, blah, blah. So th- that's the mentality of them. It's a job. They're at their work. And I think if anybody you've ever worked with customers, you know that after a while your opinion towards customers change and you stop going... Can kind I of help you, sir? And you start going, oh, Friggin' hell, I'm there complaining, bastards. That happens with, with sportsmen too. McClellan's comment at the AGM actually came from uh, a question by Pod, Pod Fraser uh, Martin-Maguire, um, Martin where he said, uh, do you think it's acceptable the debt's £67 million? And, and he said, if the fans were in charge the debt would be £167 million. It's contemptuous. You can't argue that. Uh, McClellan, though, did nothing for Rangers. McClelland is a, a footnote in the story. Um, it was a patsy who sent in, loved the Trappings of Opus, and then left without any positive impact on the club, By that, that one comment. Um, am I confident that this treatment won't happen with the current board? I would hope it wouldn't. Um, John Gilligan's on the current board, and John is a good guy, and John... 100% believes the stuff that we believe um, and thinks the way that we think and he'll always fight his corner so while John's there I, I have confidence I think they've shown good signs of at the moment I think they have a difficult job to play because there's always political equations in the background that we don't know about and as fans we would say well let's you know do this or that and it can't happen for reasons that we might not know about be it a you know, sponsor or pressure coming from whatever so I don't think it'll happen. And another reason is we're more important now. They need us. They need the money. Um, They need the fans coming through the door. And they need the fan support for certain battles that they're going to have to do. And if they don't have those things, um, that was a problem under Murray, is that he didn't need. And um, when he didn't need the fans, then you you can be contemptuous of them. So I would hope that that wouldn't happen. Okay then, folks, uh, I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, as I say, it's uh, been a bit of a, a wild stab in the dark to see if this is something that you liked. If you did like it, please let me know and I'll try and do maybe two or three of these a season. If you didn't like it, we'll condemn this one to the dustbin of history and it's been a big waste of time and we'll never go back to it again. So it's entirely that to you. Let me know where you can let me know uh, you can get in touch with me uh, on the Twitter it's at Rocks. you can also follow Scott uh, at Scott at HeartHand and get in touch with us there or go to the Facebook page which is um, just search for heart and hand the Rangers podcast on Facebook and boom there we are and leave comments there and please do let us know as I say this is something that I hadn't even thought about I hadn't even considered as being a possibility up until, you know, we did that little bit a few weeks ago and people reacted well to it. So, so please do let us know if it's been... If it didn't work, we won't do it again. If it did work, we'll try and schedule in and we can do it about other subjects um, uh, later on. So that was the plan. Anyway, I'd just like to thank our executive producers in London, Mr Mike Lee and Mr Paul Myers, and to tell you my name is David Edgar. I've been your host. Thank you very much for listening uh, and reminding me, giving me an opportunity to remind me of... Why I did that, and how much I love this club, and how much I love its supporters, and do you know what? Did a lot of things wrong, a lot of it didn't work, but when I get to the Pearly Gates and you know St Peter's standing there, wearing the classic CR Smith eighty five eighty six top, and he says to me, "You, what did you do for the Rangers, son?" I can honestly look him in the eye and say, "Well, do you know what? I did my best," and. I can go to bed at night and have a have a contented sleep based on that. Thanks very much. Speak to you again next week. Bye.